in that same light, I, I picked up a paper on Monday. Uh, it was the San Francisco Chronicle. And on the front page, in bold, black, large letters, um, read, The Great Depression. How close are we underneath? The Great Depression. How close are we? And I remember commenting to my wife, saying, well, that engenders confidence now, does it? doesn't it? That just uh, spurs you on to hope, doesn't it? It doesn't. It, 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 it stirs fears in people, and, and you can sense the fear in people as it relates to life and it re- as it relates to the uncertainty of the times, especially with headlines li- like that. Um, people are afraid, afraid of the future, afraid of uh, a diminishing retirement account, uh, potential loss of jobs, wondering if they're going to have a place to live next year. Uh, that's, that's where a lot, of, a lot of people are, and that's happening all around us. I was surprised this week to find out the, that the uh, Ford dealership here in Fairfield closed. I bought my car there, and uh, I recently also found out that the Ford dealership in, in Vacaville and also Vallejo closed down. That's, that's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of men and women who no longer have incomes coming in or um, that are trying to raise families and care for themselves. And that's, that's just the time in, in which, which we live. It's the time in which all of us as a family live. And I realize that, that it impacts some people more than others. Some of you are doing better than others. Um, but I think there is still a sense of fear underneath the um, surface on all of our parts. Um, and it's times like this that we have to remember what's important and what's substantive to life. We have to remember that we may lose our stuff. Some of us will lose some stuff. We may lose the things made out of stucco and wood and and steel, nails, granite, porcelain. But while the economy and while banks may be able to take things we can touch, there are certain things that give deeper joy and deeper sense of satisfaction that it cannot take away from us. And those are the things that we have to remember. I have to remember as as a man, and I do this, I remind myself that in my second year of marriage, I lived in a one-bedroom apartment living off potato soup and sleeping on the floor because we couldn't afford a bed. And my wife and I to this day look back on those times as some of the sweetest times in our life because we lived by faith. And it was like on the edge, recognizing God's going to provide and then seeing Him provide and experiencing the joy of knowing God is right there. Those are, those are dear times to my wife and I. We talk about them with, with um, not with regret, but with um, a sense of, Uh, of thankfulness and gratitude. It's at times like that that you have to remember. I have to remind myself that when my wife and kids leave me to go visit um, relatives up in Washington, all alone in my own house, that, you know, my my walls and my freezer and my stove don't do that much for me. You know, they don't have conversations with me. They don't encourage me. I can't, you know, experience love with my refrigerator. I can't hug it. And, and, and sense warmth from my refrigerator. It's, that is walls and floors and sinks and stuff really doesn't do something, anything for my soul. In, in fact, it's the presence of, of my loved ones that really matter. I know that every time, every summer, that I take this little tiny trailer out in which we go camping. I have three kids and my wife and I pack into this little tiny space and my kids love it. They love it. Now, I love it for a short period of time. But all that to say is it's memories, and it's the people that make a difference for me. Um, 
porcelain and wood and stucco really aren't personal. Um, It's times like this that I have to remember. I have to remember conversations that my grandparents used to have a long time ago um, around the dinner table in which they used to talk about the Depression. This, of course, is not to imply that that's where we're headed. God only knows. But I remember the conversations, and they would talk about what they would have for dinner during those times, and they were in their late 20s at the time. They would talk about gathering together at one of their homes or apartments, and and what they had for dinner was, and this is all they had, biscuits, butter, and honey. And to listen to them talk about those times, you would not sense in any, either their, their, their tone or their spirit, that they regretted those times. But those were rich times in their memories. That is, you have to remind yourself in these times that what really matters and where some of the deepest joys in life come from are not things that are inanimate objects, not the stuff of life. That's window dressing. But the people that love you and you love, that's where the deep, some of the deepest joys in, in, in life come from. We have to remember what matters and what really doesn't matter. And even more important that the presence of loved ones like family, brothers and sisters and friends is remembering that you have the presence of the loved one. That is the presence of God. If I was to draw a, a bullseye in my life as to what is most important, and not just as to what is most important, but what is most satisfying, at the very center, of course, would be the presence of God. And then the next ring after that would be my family and friends. And somewhere on the outer rings would be the car that I drive or the drapes that cover my windows. It's those things that are the most important. Most of all, the presence of God with us. That's what's most precious, and that's what's most profound, and that's what's most satisfying for God's people and have been for thousands of years in times of of, uh, prosperity and in times of famine, the presence of God. And it's precisely the presence of God that is the subject of this particular message, the presence of God. Now, that might seem somewhat remedial to talk about the presence of God. That's ridiculous. It's uh, self-evident, the presence of God. But I don't think so at all. I think the presence of God is both profound and it's precious. And it gets to the very heart of why we were created. And it is the place where we find contentment in times of chaos, the presence of God. Now, as with the other attributes that we have been studying, there is a sense in which there are two diverse facets to God's presence, two diverse but complementary aspects of God's presence. When the Bible reveals the presence of God, that is the fact that he is here, there are two dimensions to it. There is the fact that God is universal in his presence, but the scripture also reveals that God has a local sense to his presence, that is God is what they call omnipresent, which means all-present. His being is present everywhere at all times, fully. But at the same time, there's another sense in which God chooses to manifest His presence or make His presence known in finite and local ways, both of which energize the Christian faith and give us hope. Those are the two aspects of His presence that will be looking at this morning. The first part having to do with what they call his omnipresence or the fact that God's being is all present at all times in every place. And the clearest, most vivid place in Scripture and the longest chapter given to that particular truth about God that God is present everywhere is found in Psalm 139. Again, penned by King 
David, at least allegedly so. Now, before I read it, what I want you to understand is when David thinks, King David thinks about the omnipresence of God or the fact that God is present everywhere, he is not thinking of it as a theological abstraction. You can sense it in the warmth of his words. It's a living reality that causes him at different points to say, I'm overwhelmed by the wonder of this thought or these The sum of all of these thoughts are too wonderful for me to comprehend. There's a sense of praise that comes into this psalm. It is not a theological treatise or a systematic theology. It comes out of his reflections on God in a way that changes, ignites his worship, and causes him to praise the Lord, which is what I hope it will do for you. Not just a truth to understand, but a truth to energize your soul. That's, that's, I believe, what it did for David, and I hope it will do for you. The other thing to notice is that for David, the omnipresence of God, the fact that he is present everywhere, is mingled with the fact that God knows everything. His knowledge and his presence are like two roots that come out of the same tree. He winds them together. They are inseparable complements to the same truth. So as he deals with both the what we call God's omniscience, or the fact that he knows everything, and God's omnipresence, the fact that he is everywhere, the fact that he brings them together is, is, is in my mind, reason enough to treat them together here this, this evening. So with that said, he reflects on God's knowledge very personally in verses 1 through 5. This is what he says. O Lord, you have searched me and you know me. When he says, you know me, that's not some kind of a sterile knowledge. But it's the kind of knowledge that has care and love in it. The way that a mother would love or know her child. He says, Lord, you have searched me and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. He reflects on different dimensions of God's personal knowledge of his own heart. God knows every action, his rising and his sitting. God knows his thoughts from afar, which I think means not that God is somehow distant in heaven looking down and understanding David's thoughts, but rather God understands the thoughts that in David's mind are far off. You know, those kinds of thoughts that are on the outer rim of, of your consciousness that you haven't even thought yet? The idea is that God even understands those thoughts that are far off from the conscious mind. So he knows the heart, he knows the thoughts, he knows the actions. He says here, you discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. That's the patterns of life. He understood the patterns of life. And even before he speaks, he knows, God knows exactly what words are going to be formed and what phrases are going to come out of his mouth. This is intimate personal knowledge. God knew David personally, intimately, and exhaustively. And then he culminates this reflection on God's personal knowledge of him with verse 5, or excuse me, verse, yeah, verse 5 when he says, You hem me in behind and before, and you have laid your hand upon me. That is, he understands that the all All-seeing presence of God is behind him and before him and over him. In other words, he's completely surrounded by the all-seeing presence of God. He is hemmed in. He can't escape the fact that God is all around him and sees everything he is and does. His, His heart, his mind, his actions, everything. That's how well God knows his people. Intimately and exhaustively. Now that's a haunting thought, but it's also a wonderful thought. It's haunting because that means 
God not only knows every act you do in public and in private, but God knows everything that has taken place in the isolation of your own mind where you think nobody ever sees. That makes him the perfect judge. It's haunting because who of you would want somebody to be able to read your thoughts? Some of you wouldn't like it if I could read your thoughts right now. Thinking about what you're going to have for dinner. You know, you're not thinking, what is he talking about? Have you ever sat down over, over lunch and had somebody pour out their heart to you? You know, they're talking about important stuff and, and your mind starts to wander. And next thing you know, you're thinking about somebody else. And if they could read your mind, you'd probably lose them as a friend. If we could read each other's minds, there would probably be no friendships on planet Earth. That's just the way, the way it is. But the wonderful part, the fact that God knows you and loves you in spite of you, and your thoughts, and your motives, is that someone who knows you that intimately can be trusted. As if God really knows me, how I'm wired. He understands the big thoughts, the little thoughts, the fleeting thoughts, the random thoughts. He understands and knows my emotions, my emotional makeup. He understands every square inch of my soul, how I make decisions, my disposition as a personality, as a man. If he understands all of that about me intimately and lovingly, then that means I can trust that he knows what's best for me. It's, it's analogous to a parent to a child, something that you don't learn as a child. You don't learn it until you're a parent. I remember bringing a girl home after, in, in college, a girlfriend. It wasn't my wife. Just need to clarify that. And my parents know me. Now, at that age, I thought I knew me. But I brought home the girlfriend. And my parents, and she was a professed Christian, so there wasn't any problem there. And my, my parents just shared with me, we don't think who you are matches who she is. Now, most kids, when their parents say, we don't think, you know, who you are matches who she is, most kids go, well, you, what do you know, mom and dad? Well, did they ever give thought to the fact that mom and dad were there when they burped the first time and they, they changed the diapers? They saw their personality begin to blossom and bloom. They saw the weaknesses and the tendencies. They saw where, where, um, their, 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 their passions and their gifts that his parents probably more than we know more, know more about us than we do. So if, if I would have at that moment really trusted, okay, my mom and dad love me and they know me, perhaps I wouldn't have been quite so arrogant to assume that they didn't and I would have accepted and trusted, okay, I've got to trust you know me so you know what's best for me. Of course, eventually I did listen to them, which is why I'm not married to that person. But... Imagine that God the Father knows every part of your being. He knows how you tick. That means he can be trusted with the circumstances. He knows what you need. He knows what you want. and doesn't always give you what you want, but he knows what you need, just like a parent knows what his child needs. So you can trust him in the circumstances, and you can trust him at his word that he knows you intimately, exhaustively, and personally. A God like this can be trusted, which is what... What David did, he trusted God, you searched me and you know me. But then he goes on and he ties this knowledge, personal exhaustive knowledge that God has for him and he has for all of us to the fact that God's present everywhere. He says in verse 7, where can I go from your spirit? And, And John just read this a few moments ago. Where can I flee from your presence? 
If I go up into the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day, for darkness is as light to you. The progression of these verses that talk about God's presence are spectacular. They're intended to move the soul. That's, that's what poetry, by the way, is supposed to do. It's not just to move the mind, but it's to move the affections in the heart. He opens with the question, where can I go from your spirit? Is there any place in the dark corner of the universe that I can escape you being there? And then he reflects and thinks of different avenues of escape. He's not trying to escape, but he's thinking about how God's presence is everywhere. In verse 8, he explores the vertical dimension. Perhaps if I go into the highest heaven, he won't be there. I'll escape him, like getting out of the atmosphere into space. But the answer is no. As high as I fly, as far as I go up, he will be there. Well, if that doesn't work, maybe it's down into the depths. Down into either the underworld, the place of death, or perhaps he had in mind the depths of the sea. It's actually a comforting thought that even down in the depths of the sea, the darkest, coldest, most isolated, lonely place, he's there. I don't know about you, but dark water scares the tar out of me. I'm a fairly decent swimmer, but when I'm swimming over something that's really deep, it it freaks me out. I think I've, uh, I don't know if you remember the movie um, The Abyss back in the late 80s um, with Ed Harris, and they're on this oil rig deep in the dark ocean, and um, basically, Ed, at one point in the movie, has to jump off with this technic, highly technical suit that will keep him from imploding. And he jumps off this chasm. And he's just floating deeper and deeper along this canyon wall, deep into the depth of the sea. And I remember just freaking out watching that. I wanted to turn off the video because it just scares me. But it did pop into my mind that even in the darkest, most isolated and coldest parts of the sea, there you'll find the presence of God, no matter how high you go or how low you go. And then after, this, after exploring the height and the depth, he explores east and west when he says, in verse 9, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, in other words, if I fly on the wings of light at the speed of light to a distant shore in the west, perhaps there, riding on the chariot of light, and even there, East and west, doesn't matter how far you go or how fast you go, God's presence is still there. Or perhaps the elements of darkness. Remember playing hide-and-go-seek as a kid? If you're in the dark, people can't see you. Perhaps the darkness, the deep cover of darkness will hide us. And of course, he says, even darkness um, will never hide us from the presence of God. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like day. There is no darkness to the Lord. His presence is everywhere. In the heights, in the depths, east, west, and even darkness. And he goes on to reflect, even in the darkness of the womb, God was there. Reflecting back on his own formation as a person in his mother's womb, when he says, for you created my inmost being, that is my soul and my heart. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place 
When I was woven together in the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book. In other words, before who's even born, God has already ordained the number of days and his ways. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. It's just... You put that together in his reflection. He knows God knows him intimately and exhaustively and personally. And to know that there is no place, no height and no depth and no width, that the presence of God overflows the banks of the universe, that there is no darkness that can hide him. And even as he was being formed from the inception, that God was there creating and knitting, seeing. It wasn't hidden to him. But as you, you see, this isn't... This, this whole topic for David and for us should be a very intimate one. Um, not just a theological abstraction, but the truth that God knows you so personally and exhaustively. And at the same time, there's no place that you can go where you don't run smack dab into God himself. And for David, this helped his faith, as I hope it would help us. If you kind of rewind back to verse 10, there he speaks in endearing terms, when he says, even there, that is, you can put any of the places, height, depth, width, east, west, or in darkness, or even in the womb, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. That is there, even if you were to fly in a rocket ship to the dark side of a moon of the farthest galaxy where you feel like there isn't anybody and it's moon landscape, not a single soul there, God would be with you. His presence would be with you, guiding your steps and preserving your life until your appointed end comes. That has been a truth, brothers and sisters, if you can take it from the knowledge level into the heart that gave confidence to men of God for thousands of years in all kinds of tumultuous times. To know that God is actually with you. And he's not with you in percentages. God doesn't give 10% of himself here, 10% there, 10% at this church, and 10% at a different church, 10% of himself on the dark side of the moon. But rather, the sense of the psalm is that in the womb you were there, as, as if to suggest, and I believe it's true, that God is wholly and entirely present everywhere. Not in percentages, but God simply is and entirely is present everywhere fully all the time in all places. That's the sense. Remember remember as a kid, second or third grade, going out to the schoolyard and having a fifth grader slam you up against the stucco wall of of a classroom, put your arm behind your back, until you screamed uncle. Remember that? Now, of course, I hear it's a lot worse. They don't make you scream uncle anymore. But I remember during those times, there was one thing that I wished. I wished that my dad would walk around the corner. That's what I wished. I wished my dad were here, because this wouldn't be happening. I remember as a kid waking up in the middle of the night, because I do, have to go to the restroom, and you're wondering what's lurking under your bed, what's slithering in your closet. In order to go, you jump off your bed as far as you can. There's one person in that context, maybe two, that dispels all fear. 
And that is having your dad enter the room and turn on the light or your mom enter the room. At that point, whatever's lurking under the bed doesn't matter. Whatever's slithering in the closet doesn't matter because dad's here. And my earthly father couldn't be everywhere. But I know, based upon what the scripture tells me, that God, my father, is fully present everywhere, whether it's dark or light, which means to us, even when we walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, we don't have to fear because God's presence is with us, even in the shadows of the valley of death, which means even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of uncertain economic times, we don't have to fear because God's presence is always with us. That's the truth of the matter. You know how much that would make a difference to a U.S. soldier patrolling the back alleys of a dangerous city in Iraq, knowing that there might be someone who's scoping in some crosshairs on his, on his head to end his life? To actually believe, not just imagine, but to believe God is holy and completely present on this back alley with me. Or what a difference it would make to a widow who's lost her husband, finds herself alone in a house that used to be full of life, to know that while she still grieves the loss of her husband, God is still there? Or to know for the young pregnant woman who doesn't have a husband, who walks into the delivery room and no family to greet her, no one to help her through the difficult time, to know and believe God is here with me? That's what brings peace in turmoil. That's what gives security in uncertain times. That's the bedrock truth of what this is. I realize that this isn't how to better your marriage, but this isn't more important than that. What gives stability in life? What gives stability as you face death? Well, it's one thing. It's realizing that God's presence is here with us. Not as an abstraction, but as a reality. But then we can flip it on the other side. I mean, that's the amazing glory of God's omnipotence. Or omnipotence, omnipresence, the fact that His presence is everywhere, fully and completely. But we can flip to the other part of the truth, and that is God graciously and lovingly chooses to localize himself in ways and in places and in people that he doesn't in other places, ways, and people. That is, God chooses, and this is part of the love of God, who, the, God the God whose presence overflows the banks of the universe, chooses to localize himself in finite ways to dwell amongst his people. That's part of the glory of God, is to realize that He does come and He exists in a time and a place, in a special, unique way. And that has been true from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible. The very opening chapter of the Bible, we find that in some way, the Spirit comes and hovers over the face of the darkness and begins to explode this creation. That somehow the Spirit localized Himself over the dark water and created all things. In some remarkable way, God localized His presence so that He could walk with Adam in the cool of the day. In some remarkable way, God localized His presence when He brought His people out of Egypt and He revealed or He manifested His presence in the confines of a cloud by day and in a pillar of fire by night. I mean, that's the God of the Scripture. Even in the camp of Israel, as they were camping out in the middle of the desert, there God would dwell and inhabit a tent to be with His people. When God met with, or should I say made His presence known to Moses up on the, on the, on the peak of Mount Sinai, 
There God revealed Himself in the finite luminescent light and sound of God is gracious and loving and compassionate to a thousand generations. When Solomon built the first great temple and he acknowledged that not the highest heavens could contain the the presence of God, nevertheless God localized His presence in a brilliant cloud in the temple. And in the fullness of time, God would choose to localize Himself in the finite flesh of a man so that the presence of God became flesh and dwelt among us and we would behold His glory so that He would dwell with His people. That's that's the picture of the God of the Scriptures, a God whose presence overflows the universe at the same time in grace and mercy chooses to localize Himself to be amongst His people. It's the whole point of the cross, isn't it? To bring us back into the presence of what was lost so that we might experience what we were intended for, namely the presence of God, us being with Him. That's the purpose of life. People don't find that. They don't find the purpose of life. That's what the beginning of Genesis tells us. The beginning of life we were created for Him. And it's not until we realize that and realize the cross was the only way back to the presence of God that we realize that's, that's the fundamental purpose of my life is to be in the presence of my Creator. And get this. Now Jesus is gone, right? He left. He promised to come back. But God wasn't pleased to leave us without His presence. So God, and Jesus tells us, when I go, I will leave you something. I will leave you the Comforter that is the Spirit of the living God. Look at this. The Spirit of the living God whose presence overflows the universe is present in the believer's life in a way he is not present in the unbeliever's life. The presence of God localizes Himself. In Christ, He localizes Himself with us. And in the Spirit, He localizes Himself in us so that God dwells without and within. And I know some of us are used to talking about the Holy Spirit as an abstraction. As if he's not to be experienced. But when Jesus says, I give you a comforter, what else are we to infer from those words other than he actually comforts us? That the Spirit was given and and, and has been a tremendous gift so that we might experience not theoretical love, but actual love. Not theoretical comfort, but actual comfort. Not theoretical strength, but actual strength. Not theoretical patience, but actual patience. That's, that's the Spirit of God has been given to His people, a much neglected truth and reality. It's not an abstraction. He's a reality to be experienced. We gather together to worship that we might experience the Spirit of the living God who localizes Himself in the heart of the believer, which is why I don't believe, my little two cents, it's wrong to speak or say, Spirit of the living God, will you please Come. Now, I know that the Spirit of God has already come, but the Scripture also tells us we can be filled with Him. That's why I can say, God be with you. That's not a denial of the fact that God is everywhere. It's to say that I recognize that God in some special way makes His presence known in our life through the Spirit, through His grace, and to wish that upon somebody. See, those are the two amazing dynamics of the presence of God. To know that He is everywhere all the time fully so that we can walk through the valleys of the shadow of death and know He's with us, but also to know that in in an amazing way, God chooses to dwell with His people. Be with us.
be in us. That's what matters. That's what matters. When it, when it comes right down to it, regardless of what the headlines say, you know, your, our stuff's going to come and it's going to go. And someday when you die, it's all going to go anyway. It's going to come, it's going to go. Jobs may come, jobs may go. They may get, be gained, may be lost. Companies are going to come, companies are going to go. Even your family and friends may leave or perish. But the presence of God remains forever. And it was always intended to be the bedrock and fortress of God's people to know that no matter what happens in the world, God's presence is with me. And that's what matters most. That's the rock you hold on to when you're not certain of the future. The presence of God. He is our strength. He is our source of joy. When things feel a bit sorrowful, He's our sense of security when things seem insecure. The presence of God everywhere, but yet with and in us. And it's not just the foundation of the believer, but as I enter and read the Scriptures, it was the hunger of the believer. There was nothing more sacred and satisfying than to experience the presence of God so that the psalmist could say over and over and over again, Whom have I in heaven but you? And on earth there is nothing I desire beside you. You will fill me with joy in your presence and eternal pleasures at your right hand. You're the strength of my heart and my portion forever. My soul yearns and even faints for the courts of the living God. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. That is the presence of God. This one thing I ask, this one thing will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord forever and to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. That's the one singular hunger in the Scriptures, the presence of the Lord, what we were created for, the foundation of our hope, but also the hunger of our soul. Brothers and sisters, I, I stop with this. this. I simply want to say, don't let the world send you into fits of fear or the paralysis of panic when God has promised to be with you through the storm, to be your fortress and your rock. Cast yourself upon Him and know that if you have Him, and then you add to that your family and friends that God has given you for this time, we have everything and we can trust Him. The one who promised never to leave us nor forsake us. Will you spend just a couple of moments, if you find yourself in a place where you don't hunger for the Lord, or you doubt that He is here with you, will you just say, Lord, please convince me that you're fully here right now. You're in my circumstances. You're in here and here in my depression. You're here in the darkness. I know it helped me to believe it. Or if you lack the hunger, you say, Lord, please fill me with the kind of hunger that says my heart and my flesh cry out for you, the living God.